Hello, everybody, and welcome. You're listening to SFF Addicts. Today's episode of the podcast is an author panel from TBRCon 2022, a virtual literature convention run by FanFi Addicts David Walters with a focus on science fiction, fantasy, and horror. What you're about to listen to is just one of the panels from the convention that I'll be publishing here on the SFF Addicts podcast feed. Mind you, I won't be uploading all of the panels as there are a lot, 24 in total. So if you're aching for more, head over to the FanFiatic YouTube channel to see full video of each and every one. And if you can't catch a panel live, don't worry. They will be available there from now until YouTube's demise. Also, TBRCon is available to stream live every day until January 30th, 2022 on the FanFiatic Twitter account, Facebook page, or YouTube channel. So for more information on the convention, including the full schedule of panels and more, head over to fanfiatic.com slash tbrcon. 2022. I'll also include all links in the show notes for your convenience. All right, now on to the panel. Here we go. Everybody and uh, thank you so much for tuning in to the last panel of TBR Con. So it's panel twenty-four over this long eight-day period, but it's been an amazing just set of authors and panels and D and D sessions and everything. But I'm super excited to be hosting the Morally Great Characters panel uh, with some just phenomenal writers that I have here. Uh, but first, I just want everybody to kind of go around, and introduce yourselves. But uh, Richard, I'll let you go first. Ah, thank you. Uh, my name is Richard Morgan. Uh, I wrote, write mostly uh, very violent science fiction, although I did take some time out uh, to do uh, some very violent fantasy as well. Uh, so I'm no no one trick pony. Uh, I also moonlight a bit in comic books and video games. Uh, doing quite a lot of the latter of that at the moment. Um, working on working on a video game for a, an outfit called Godzilla based out of Kiev. Uh, and yeah, I guess I'm probably most famous for my first novel, uh, Altered Carbon, which uh, was made into a TV show uh, on Netflix, which some of you may have seen. No, no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Jeremy? Uh, yes, my name is Jeremy Zal. I write uh, character-driven space opera, uh, science fiction. Uh, as you can, you may have noticed, uh, there they are, uh, books Storm, Blood and Blind Space, first two books in the common trilogy uh, about DNA fixing aliens and makes people uh, get basically get high on uh, uses a drug makes people get high on adrenaline and aggression as as one does and uh, my mum thinks they're great books and for all you viewers out there uh, you have been po- I've poisoned you and the antidote is somewhere within these pages so you'll have to buy them if to find out I love Jeremy's uh, humble brag there. Uh, and here's my books. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Sazzle. Uh, all good bookshops. <laughs> and in my lounge. Uh, yeah, I am Luke Arnold. I write the Fetch Phillips Archives, which are a kind of fantasy noir series. Uh, the first one was Last Smile in Sunder City, then Dead Man in a Ditch, and the third installment, One Foot in the Fade, is coming out uh, in March this year. What about you, Joe? Oh, I'm uh, I'm Joe Abercrombie. I, I write uh, fantasy, I suppose, of a morally grey nature. I've written yeah. twelve books. If you can believe that? The horror. 
And a collection of short stories too. That's it, I think, really. <laughs> Going for lucky number 13, right? Well, I'm, I'm saying 13 with the short stories, so I'm hoping I can make it 14 with a, with a new one if I ever finish. <laughs> I got you. What about you, Stephen? Hi, I'm Stephen Ariane. I write uh, fantasy. I've had two trilogies with Orbit. And I've got a new duology at the moment with Angry Robot Books. Uh, the second one is coming out uh, this August. And something new in the works at the moment I can't talk about, obviously. So there you go. <laughs> I thought this panel was for talking about everything you can't talk about, isn't that? Yeah. Is that what we're all here? Yeah, that's um, what we're here. <laughs> so uh, first question I've got for everybody. So who is one of your favorite morally great characters in genre fiction, television, or film? And you can always name one in each category if you want, or you can name more than one in one category. It's really up to you. But uh, Luke? Because I told you we would beforehand, you start. Um, yeah, I think the one that springs to mind at the moment is uh, Sam Vimes, which, you know, and I always kind of reference Pratchett as a kind of influence on my stuff. But um, because I write, you know, noirish fiction that kind of, you know, has cops and corruption and stuff, he's just a great reference for, um, I don't know, I'm doing a lot of looking at, as I think a lot of us are, examining the role of police and, uh you know, the individual within that, who they're actually serving, how you try and do the right thing when you've, you know, got a bunch of rules you're meant to follow and people you're meant to serve. And uh, he's just always been a great, I think, <laughs> yeah, one, one of the one of the most interesting police in, in that kind of genre fiction with a lot of interesting ideas and someone who in a system is trying to work out the way to actually, you know, like fetch in my books, do a little bit of good. How about you, Stephen? I was thinking about this. I've got a, I've got a couple. It's kind of a, from film, but also from the comics. I think Magneto is quite an interesting character mm -hmm. because you've got the great conflict between him and Charles Xavier on both sides of this thing about what to do with mutants and how they fit into the world and how the. But he's, you know, most of the time I find myself agreeing with him, if not his methods. Um, Another one from books would be Dexter Morgan from the Jeff Lindsay books and the TV mm. show and stuff because <laughs> Michael C. Hall is so charismatic and he's so funny and he's so sarcastic and you get his internal monologue all the time and yet you're supposed to kind of forget at the back of your mind he's actually a serial killer. <laughs> but because he's so nice and he's so charming and he's pets his dog and he's nice to his sister and then like, yeah, but on the nighttime he's still going out and killing people. The fact that they're all bad people is... You know, quite the held hence morally grey, I guess. But uh, I do like him because he's very, very clever and he's very funny with it. So, yeah, he's a favourite. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Yeah, Dexter's definitely one of my favourites. I, I don't know how many times I've rewatched that series just for Michael C. Hall. It's like not even like the rest of the like the cast. Like I just I watched watch the new season. Yeah, because that's just yeah. come out. So I'm waiting to till it wraps up and I'll watch the new season. So, absolutely. What about you, Joe? Well, I was thinking about this. I, I think. Um... The one I pick is Kugel the Clever, Jack Vance, Dying Earth. Bit old, maybe now, but uh, and I'm also thinking, is he morally grey or is he just absolutely awful? You know, I kind of like the people at the very dark grey end because you know the only positive personality trait Kugel has is sense of humour. You know, other than that, he's just this self-serving slime who bumbles through a set of circumstances doing the least work possible and leaving a trail of destruction behind him. And I just find that a hilarious character and so 
very different to a lot of the kind of heroes you got in fantasy in, in that era where, you know, they're people with a greater purpose, people motivated by, you know, important matters. And he's just this scum, this horrible scum, <laughs> falling through life and somehow always kind of falling uppwards. So, yeah. How about you, Jeremy? Uh, I'm going to have to go with Geralt of Rivia uh, from the Witcher books, TV series, and games. Mostly the games uh, and the books. And I think it's mainly because I just find the world that he's in to be so interesting, morally wise, and challenging. And to the point where you'd be in the games and you'd be stumbling across this quest, that at, this side quest that at first glance looks pretty straightforward. You know, someone's this monster is going around killing people or this uh, bandit's been raiding a village or whatever. And then you go and investigate and you find that that's, it's not quite as straightforward as that. And uh, I think one of the best ones in the whole game series is a bloody Baron side quest from the Witcher three. And uh, which is the high point of uh, video game storytelling for me. And uh, it re really makes you after you've, you know, collected the clues and come to your own conclusions as you do, you find those conclusions challenged uh, very strongly. Sometimes you find, okay, there's actually so much more to this than just what meets the eye. And it's actually quite uncomfortable sometimes to be told, no, you're wrong. And this is like, we're not, you're not maybe even not wrong, but this is why, you know, there's actually a lot more to this and you've missed quite a bit of the, the story. And it actually forces you to rethink where you sit in the moral spectrum. And uh, I think that Geralt, because Geralt really is a, uh he's not really the center of the stories he's more just the point in which all the stories are told uh you you can filter your personality through them and i just find that when i'm doing those side quests or reading those books i just find myself so riveted and engaged and absolutely like gripped okay what would i do in this situation and the great thing about being in the games is that you actually do get to decide and I just find him to be a really compelling character to just make those decisions through or even just watch him make those decisions. Hmm. How about you, Richard? Well, I'm going to go, I think, I've got a couple actually, but I'm going to go, I think, with uh, Tony Soprano, actually, for the, the sort of the keynote, because uh, that's partially a sort of nod of thanks, because I'm I'm pretty sure that one of the reasons I got published and was, was sort of lucky enough to have a lot of, of quite fast success when I did get published was because I think the zeitgeist shifted around the end of the 90s and we suddenly started getting a lot more interested in um, in genuinely morally questionable characters. And I mean genuinely, I think it's interesting, Joe mentions that he likes the dark end of the grey spectrum. And I think, yeah, that, that sort of, it's because the thing about the Tony is that you know, he's actually very badly behaved generally. I mean, it's, you know, so it, again, he's much near the darker end. But on the other hand, his concerns are the concerns of pretty much anyone who's a, you know, a married man with kids has got. And I think that's the balance because what you see is here's a man trying to live a life that you identify with quite, quite clearly and has all of the usual, the same stresses and strains that you identify from maybe your own life or the life, certainly the life of friends around you. But he's also a murdering scumbag and a criminal. And I just think that it captured something about the human condition. It was like literally, you know, all these bad people out there in the world, they're not any different than you and me, really. They're, 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 you know, circumstance and maybe a, a bit of predisposition has, has pushed them into certain directions. But fundamentally, there'll always be some ground 
that, that is very, very human. And I, I really have a feeling that one, because I, I had a absolutely zero success getting published in the 80s and 90s when I was first writing. And I, I didn't change what I wrote. I mean, so I think the zeitgeist changed. I mean, maybe I got better as well. But um, the, what people wanted to read about uh, seemed to shift. And I, I think The Sopranos had a lot to do with that. I think they were very, very, it was a very seminal show. And you saw an enormous amount of other TV coming after that, that took the same ground, you know, I mean, The, the Wire being an obvious one. So, I, I, yeah, I'm, I, I, think, I think Tony was a, a magnificent creation, really. Uh, absolutely fantastic. Um, I'm going to shout out also from my own personal influences, um, Dominic Flandry from the Paul Anderson uh, Golden Age science fiction stuff. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys have read that. Um, Agent of the Terran Empire, Flandry of Terror, stuff like that. It, it's a sort of it's a kind of sub James Bond character in a in a space opera world in which there's a a kind of decaying Earth Empire that's being pushed out by a number of alien empires that are far, clearly far, historic, they're on the right side of history, they're the dynamic ones, and Earth is rotting and falling apart. And Flandry is this sort of hedonistic, sleazy, you know, uh, uh, good life kind of guy who's also very good at, at, at being a spy, and he's essentially a, a special agent for the Empire. And he, he does some pretty horrible things, although a lot of it is... is they Paul Anderson who wrote it, he cheated a bit because a lot of the really horrible things Flandry does, you don't really see, you just get told about, uh, you know, in retrospect. Um, but he does a bunch of horrible stuff. But the point is, he's desperately running around trying to sort of stick the bits of the empire together and make sure it all holds up at least until he dies. Uh, because, you know, he's, he, he doesn't want it to fall apart. And he keeps saying, I can see that history is on their side. But fuck them. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm human, and it's a human empire, and I'm, I, I I'm fighting for for what matters to me. Um, and I really, I mean, I read the first of those when I was probably only about nine years old. Uh, it was, I was picking up, you know, science fiction paperbacks in in in, in bookshops, and it really struck me this whole sense of here is a man who is thoroughly dishonourable, uh, you know, and and has done a bunch of really unpleasant stuff, but he's doing it all for what he perceives as the greater good. But it isn't even a, a you know an objective greater good. It's literally that's what he sees as the greater good. But he also you. Anderson's genius was he allowed you to see that that was a partial view. Um, so I say, if you get the chance to read them in their original form, because I think he came back and bowlerized them a bit later, but if you get a chance to read them in the original form, the, the, the Flandry of Terror stories, they, they really are fun and, and, uh, and, and very interesting from a psychological point of view. Hmm. Yeah, I was gonna, I'm going to kind of mirror Stephen with, the, with the, the TV kind of stuff. I think Walter White is probably one of my favorites because, mm -hmm. I mean, you really just feel for him so early on in that series, and then you just kind of see him become this horrible person as it progresses because he starts getting more and more powerful. Uh, but, like, you still, you're still like, there, there's some good in him somewhere. Like, I just know there is. Like, I, eventually, it's, it's, he's just going to stop doing what he's doing. He's just going to care for his family. But then everything just kind of starts crumbling. Um, but, you know, he was kind of like that character before I really started getting into the, I guess you'd say the darker kind of fantasies. I, I don't know. I didn't read a whole lot of, like, lighter fantasy uh, where the more like characters were. It was mostly, you know, you have a good and you've got a bad that there's really no in between. You might have some minor characters that have some ambiguity, but, 
but yeah, he was, he kind of like start, like, I guess, jump started that. Then I started reading it about it. And I go, okay, okay I, I think I can get on board with these people. Kind of, does that make me a bad person? If I can see, <laughs> yes, yeah, selling drugs is great. Like make as much money as you can. <laughs> but he's doing it for his family. Dave. Yeah, That's exactly. What- <laughs> but it was also, I mean, I think what was, what was nice about, about, uh, you know, Breaking Bad. And again, I think Breaking Bad was another off, you know, sort of spawn of Sopranos tendency. I think what was great about, Breaking Bad, especially the first season, was it was like in this insane version of America, it makes perfect sense for this guy to behave this way. You know, it's a, you're asking yourself, in what insane world would a would a high school physics uh, chemistry teacher uh, become a drug dealer? And he's like, in this world, this is mm-hmm. why. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it, I, you know, he, I, you know, it's funny because I watched the fir- the, the entire first season and, and most of the second season, and at no point did I ever have any problem with what he was doing at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like, man, survive. You got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, you I, felt the, I, I felt the, I felt the blame lay compl- everywhere else. You know, it was his fucking stupid family. It was, <laughs> it was people yeah. around, right? and you know, you know, I don't want to be mean, but I personally think that they they shifted the goalposts quite badly with Breaking Bad because in the early in the the early seasons, certainly the first one, you know, characters like Skylar, she was a dweeb she was an idiot you know and they played her as such you know and you remember do you remember the cushion scene when they're all sitting around and you can't talk unless you hold the cushion uh you know and and they had skylar and they had the brother brother-in-law who's with the dea and he's he's a bit of an idiot as well and they and there was this genuine sense that these these characters did it's like for christ's sake can you not see and only walter can see you know um and then i think i think there must have been a, a meeting a writer's room meeting and someone sort of went um I did guys drugs are bad and oh shit! They are, aren't they? Um, <laughs> so then, it, then they sort of darkened the tone really quickly, and and yes. it started to be. But I, I always felt that that felt artificial because it was like, no. But the, the whole point is, you're commenting on the kind of context that creates this, um, and uh, so I never really had a problem with him. I must admit. I, 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 yeah, if, if, well, it's interesting. It feels like there's something in the Shakespearean tragedy of it, though, where that the idea that he know he needs everyone to know he's smarter than him is yeah. like you know whether it's Macbeth's ambition or every you know, that fatal flaw is like it's his ego around his intelligence is what you, all those moments you go you could stop now if it was for your family and but no he's just that need to be better than everyone else and and for people to know it is what. Yeah drives it up to those levels and yeah yeah what about his, Vic Mackey his ego, his ego definitely I was going to say Vic Mackey yeah what about him uh, like, yeah another interesting one that was yeah. the same period as well wasn't it as the Sopranos post Sopranos yeah early 2000s um it was the sort of uh you know the speedy equivalent it was like the wire for for um people who wanted more action I think <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned that Luke about him you know he could that Shakespearean tragedy, that thing that just he can't let go of. And you look back through the seasons, especially like seasons three and four, where he could have stopped. And every single time he somehow gets roped back in because mm-hmm. of something he does. He could have just let it go, but oh no, he got drunk at his uh his brother-in-law's place, got a bit of had a bit <clears throat> too much wine and you know, was a bit too casual in suggesting the killer was still out the drug guy was still out there he could have you know just let the let the uh let it go about the the poetry book he but he had to say you got me walter white mm-hmm. uh you know there's all these instances that you look back and these little situations that he could have just walked away clean exit to the right 
but he kept going straight and it was always down to his ego and always because he wanted to do more and at the final scene between him and Skylar where she's like you know don't if you tell me one more time that you did it for us and he's like no I'm not telling I you did it him. Yeah. I did it for me because the other oh, thing about it is that in the end, one of the things with with him is that he's just he's just good at it. That's oh, the yeah. thing. It's that whole idea that um, you know. I remember reading an article. This is a bit of a tangent. I remember reading an article years ago where they were saying that um, you know one of the reasons that in the sixties the American um, sort of radical fringe of of students and and you know and essentially terrorists because that's what a lot of those guys were the reason those guys were so successful and they ran rings around law enforcement for years was because they were clever they were they were college graduates you know and he said the whole point is the police are used to dealing with criminals and by and large criminals are fucking stupid and <laughs> and it's, that's, that's exactly that. that's the same thing with walter white you know as that was that um you know every everyone around him is so stupid uh, you know, um, and he's just, it's like all it takes is a modicum of intelligence and you can make this work. You know, you you can, and the reason that there's so much horror in the drug trade and the criminal world is because everyone's fucking stupid. You know, it's, uh, it, and I love that dynamic. I, I, I think, you know, that, that's, that's, it's the same with, um, what's it, Layer Cake, very similar vibe to Layer Cake, mm-hmm. where again, he's a character, you've seen that movie, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, with Daniel Craig, it was his calling card. Know, yeah. Yeah. And again, he's a he's a clever, he's an intelligent drug dealer, uh, and his whole thing is no violence, no mess. We just we do this, we we do this smart, and so we get we make a shitload of money, and no one gets hurt. And then of course it it ceases to work that way because somebody slips up. Yeah. Mm. Um, so what are, what characteristics or traits must a morally great character have in order for a reader to become invested with them, or at least? What do you think they are? So, uh, Joe, I'll start with you. Was that me? Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's an interesting question. It was occurring to me while a couple of you, a couple of you were talking. I think both Richard and Jeremy they talked quite a lot about setting when they were talking about their pick. You know, and I wonder, in a way, if we are talking about morally grey characters as much as grey settings, in a sense. Like the thing about Lord of the Rings is not so much that the people are very black and white. It's that the world is very black and white. You know, you have an absolute evil in that world and an absolute good. Mm. Right? You can't be. The only way you can be morally gray, really, in Lord of the Rings is the degree to which you turn away from good towards evil or the other way. Right. So Boromir gives in to corruption. And in that sense, he's kind of gray. Saruman as was white and has turned gray. And so, but that's all you can really do. Now, is Ned Stark, say, from Game of Thrones, really a very grey character? I mean, I'd say he's as white a character as Aragorn or anyone else, but he lives in a much greyer world. Yeah, Diff- uh, more difficult choices. Exactly. He doesn't have an easy choice. right? You know, Aragorn, his only choice is do the right thing or do the wrong thing. That's really <laughs> the only option. Right? You can be against Sauron, which is right, or you can give in to Sauron, which is wrong. Right, so those are your only options. It doesn't matter who you are; those are the only choices the world really gives you. Whereas Stark is just presented with this shitstorm of impossible choices <laughs> right from the start. You know, he's kind of even even the choice of do I kill my daughter's dog or do I not? Even a small choice like that is suddenly like, oh my god, I'm weighing up these two really difficult, <laughs> no win, bad answers, and he's just presented with these endlessly. 
And so he becomes gray because he's kind of floundering through this mess of impossible positions where his own small, little, tiny character flaws really become amplified by the kind of the shit he's dropped into. And Richard was talking about Walter White and how that can only happen within this powder keg of what, you know, the New Mexico drug scene is like. And so I think, you know, likewise, The Shield, that can only happen in L.A. You know, that can only happen on the mean streets of this very messy place. That's where these messy characters, you know, the characters become messy because they're in this messy place. There's no other choice, really. And in fact, in The Shield, not only is Vic Mackey is obviously kind of pretty evil, really, but a lot of the other characters are sort of dragged down to his level and become equally bad or, you know, equally corrupted by him and by all the other stuff that's going on. So I wonder if part of the, the whole fun of morally grey characters is really just people who are stuck in a very grey and difficult set of circumstances. So Joe's next book is going to be set in Candyland. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be the first person that sharpens a lollipop stick and stabs it. <laughs> Kids book, then. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah, and, and I, I see what you mean by Ned Stark. I mean, even if you think back to the, to the very first episode, I mean, like 10 minutes in, he's having to behead somebody, like, right off the bat. It's, and it's like, it doesn't even seem like he wants to do it, but it's because he has to do it. And you automatically think like, you didn't even give this guy a chance, like to explain his story. It's and like, you, and, because and as, soon also, as, he, as soon as he left, he had to die. That, yeah, that was and it. You also know as the, as the, because of the narrator, you all actually also know that that's the wrong choice, you know, in that you're aware that he's not, he's not running because, because of his failings. He's, he's, you know, he's running for a good reason. And, and so that, you know, that steps it up even more. Cause it's not just, it's not just, you know, you've taken a morally questionable decision. It's like, you've, you've fucked up here. <laughs> you know, well, did, you, did he you, did he you a choice for start to make. I don't think he could make another choice. Cause that was, well, he, no, no, but he could oh, believe, he can, could believe, he can believe the guy and, you know, investigate it do something about it you know Um, that there are actually walkers coming and so forth because i mean you know it not not that it would have really changed the narrative too much because you know you still have all these people that aren't going to believe ned start you know at at, Mm. at the end of the day but it could change it a little bit to where you kind of start like you start investigating it more no i mean realistically yeah you're right joe's right you he doesn't i mean you know it's it's not you know it's not really a choice but but i think the interesting thing about that dynamic is and i'm sure you know obviously i think martin set it up very deliberately is you as the reader know mm. that this is the wrong choice right you know? and stark can't know that he's he's not in a position to know that but you suddenly so you're given this very clear message very early on uh look these guys they don't have your your reader's view they don't have the god's eye view you know? and that's why they screw up that's why they make these wrong wrong choices they, they mess up a lot yeah, so exactly. Characters we're talking about—they're very imperfect. They're very—they're very prone to fail. Maybe that's one thing that, we, that you know is exciting and interesting about them. We don't—we know from the start Aragorn's probably going to come good, right? He's going to yeah. come, good, you know. Whereas Walter White—I mean, who knows where that's going? Or Tony Soprano, or you know, Kugel the Clever, or any of these others—they're they're people who are very unpredictable. You've no idea where the story is going when you're kind of alongside them. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. And you're kind of, you're kind of wondering if they'll just stop at some point, and they're like, "No, they're they're going to keep going." Oh, okay, okay, that's where we're going. No, I don't. I really don't see where we're going here. <laughs> thing, right? Isn't it the element of surprise? You have, don't know where this is going to go. I mean, even in uh, Game of Thrones, when uh, I think Jon Snow be- beheads Janos Slint, 
at no point until he actually gets the sword do you think okay he's actually going to do it because you've never seen Jon Snow do something that cold-blooded I mean obviously he the man betrayed his father uh but like you never not until that point do you actually know like there's that build up in that scene where he's saying to everyone okay get my sword get ready you guys take him outside and behead him and in the book he actually there's this little paragraph when he says something like you know he could have locked him in the cell he could have said uh that he gets rations he could have uh sent him away he could have exiled him but then he said take him outside and behead him and at no point until he does that do you think it's actually going to happen that's the thing that annoys me sometimes about superhero films and i quite do enjoy the sometimes sometimes. (laughs) but it's just if every single character their moral compass is always set in stone and they always have to do the right thing and they always have to not kill the bad guy and they're not allowed any deviation from that pathway whatsoever like there's no questioning there's no reimagining uh then it becomes so incredibly boring and one of my favorite things in the MCU actually is that scene in Daredevil where Matthew uh, is, or Charlie, um, Charlie Cox's character, Daredevil, he's talking to the priest about, you know, does the devil exist? Is this man someone I should kill? <laughs> um, Wilson Fisk. And the priest goes into this long monologue about this atrocity he witnessed. And he said, do I think the devil exists? Yes. I think he walks along us as men. And you can kind of see that shift in morals moral compass that tiny tilt that yes okay this is a man i should kill because how many other people will he kill and that's why i think he's daredevil is so much more compelling than so many of these other superhero films where the end game like no the character is just going to do the right thing save the city not kill a bad guy and just there's no moral moral realignment or any like shift in personality and it's just it, it becomes very stagnant and I think that's I think, why a lot of people like morally great characters because of that surprise. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to be a little bit cynical and I'm going to say that I think one of the things that allows you to carry a morally great character, uh, you know, to, to get the audience with you is basically strength. I think we are hardwired to really, really like strength and uh, you can get away with a shit ton of bad behavior with a character if that character only demonstrates that they are strong. Um, you know, so whether that's physically strong, in a, you know, good in a fight or whether it's extremely sharp and smart and so able to sort of play the angles and whatever, you know, but that we all love winners. Right. So it's it's that I think you'd be amazed the amount of horrible shit that, that the reader will go. Yeah, yeah, fine, fine. Um, you know, <laughs> as, as long as the guy is as either strong or smart or both. Yeah. What were you going to say, uh, Stephen? Then I'll come back to you, Luke. I was just going to say one of the most interesting characters probably in the marvel universe last 20 years and in the comics has been a winter soldier because of what jeremy you were talking about he is morally gray you know later down in the films he's one of the good guys but you forget for the last 50 years he's been working for the russians assassinating people spoilers killing tony stark's parents and butchering all of these people what? sorry so i spoiled the game. Oh, no. i gotta edit that out now is this live is this live anyway, but, but he's, oh, check he's, the comments but go back to brubeck who, who took him from the comics when bucky was just this goofy sidekick and he created something different that was so interesting that it was a best-selling comic for years and it's been so good that they keep bringing him back because the character has layers he's got all of this awful blood in his 
you know, ledger, as it were, that he can never get his hands completely clean. All the things he did, and he can remember all of it. And it's just, it's layers and layers. You're talking about, you know, Captain America will always do the good, the right thing because he's absolute north. He's the perfect moral compass. He's a perfect man in some ways. Um, but you get someone like the Winter Soldier or even Zemo, who, who I like the fact that he finds a little flaw in Cap. Like he says, I like there's a little bit of green in your blue eyes. They're not quite as perfect as I thought. And that's the only flaw he's got. That's what he has to resort to with Cap. But, but he's, Amer- he's in America. He's Captain America. When, when has an American ever been flawed? Like a little yeah. American. <laughs> I'm going to skip past that and focus yeah. on <laughs> the Winter Soldier. But yeah, he's, he's interesting. He's on the fringes, though. So, yeah. What were you going to say, Luke? Yeah, but I think it is, it, with, with all this in there, build, building on how much it relies on the world, because if you are, if the world is morally grey, as our world is, anyone who does stick to one side or one way of being or have their mor- think their moral compass is tuned in one direction and will follow it without question, uh, generally the people who become the bad guys or people that I would not want to talk to in real life. I think it's the the constant questioning like if if the world is gray you must be gray because you must be prepared to question everything you've been taught that you know what you think is right to not do the thing that when you feel and when everyone's telling you this is the right thing this is what should make you a hero and if you go into that blindly and don't question it there's a good chance that's how they get you to do something terrible and so it does work if you are in a yeah a a glossed over simplified superhero world where it has been sanded down to have one option or the other, then, yeah, you can absolutely go like, cool, I'll just follow these guys into battle and they're wearing the brighter costume, so it'll probably all turn out fine. Where I think why I've always been drawn to morally questionable, morally grey characters is because they're the ones struggling to make sure, like to keep going, are we actually doing the right thing? Or do, or do... Or, or am I going to have to do the wrong thing for the greater good? The wrong, the, the thing that might haunt me for the rest of my days or might make everyone hate me or might put me on the outside of the group because I think the group are doing something that is maybe not in the society and the system we're in the wrong thing. But if I take a step back and really think about this, I yeah, <laughs> that, yeah the old meme of, are we the baddies? Yeah. The morally great, yeah, morally great characters need to be the ones ask that ask that question more than the good guys or the baddies. Or, or if you're, you know, you're a writer for a television series, like how do I extend this? Okay, let's make this person make the wrong decision so we can get at least another season or three out of this. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And when a really clear one, and it is, it's, it is, it's, it is tougher, I think, to write and create and play sometimes is that grayness because it is, it's more dramatic to just have someone do the thing that is clearly the wrong thing, whether by accident or they have a moment of weakness or they choose, like, that is a clearer dramatic moment. But it does, it's eventually not as interesting as yeah. being, as, as those moments where we are like, I don't know what they should do. Yeah, I, mean, you know, I, I feel I feel like in order to to really get somebody to engage with the character that what's like in film or or television, you've got to draw it out a lot longer. Because like in a book, you know, you can write the inner emotions and so forth. It's really hard to portray on a screen. Uh, whereas like you know, you can write them in a book, and you're like, oh my god, I can't believe he did that. You're watching it in the film, you're just like. Okay, that's completely opposite from like his character. If you did it like in an episode after or something, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I have to imagine it's it, you know you have to string it out anyway in order to to bring that ambiguity in there. 
Um, and don't worry, you don't have to keep saying morally gray character. You don't have to keep referencing the final title. It's fine. <laughs> I'm just saying that when, when my brain's trying to catch up with my mouth, I, that's what yeah. I say just while I actually think what I'm saying next. I, I, I always think about that, like when you're reading a book and, and the author references the title somewhere in the book. And, you know, I wonder if people have that like, ah, oh, moment, you know, when they're reading or not. Um, so uh, I want to go back to a question we we sort of touched on a little bit. I think Richard's touched on it, but um, when do you believe the shift between the Mary Sue, you know, the very very good, perfect character, et cetera, and the morally gray began, and why do you think that happened? Uh, Jeremy, I'll start with you. Well, I'm the least qualified person to answer this, since everyone on the panel is pretty much twice my age. <laughs> Um, wow, <laughs> thanks for reminding me about that. Yeah, do I need, do I need to drop Jeremy down that young man category like you, Jeremy? I don't know what you mean by that. That's true, but um, you know, I, I'm not obviously, you know, I was you know, only started really reading sci fi fantasy genre fiction really in, since the 2009, 2010, 2011. That was when I picked uh, read the Game of Thrones books. Um, but I I would say so other people are obviously more equipped answer than me, but I would say that in in it's always been there to some degree. Obviously, like it's always existed. It's just how much has it actually existed in the uh in the mainstream. I mean, Breaking Bad could not have been made with the success that it's had twenty years ago after it aired. It couldn't Game of Thrones, no way in hell. Yeah. Uh, not even con the content aside, just but because of the moral quandaries uh of it. So it, it's always been there. I mean, like, if you look at European cinema and, um, you know, even film noir from the 30s and 40s and 50s, there's definitely a, a moral ambiguity or people do, uh, doing the wrong things for the right reasons or the right things for the wrong reasons. Uh, and But it's, it's always been secluded. I think it's always been, like, kept it's a bit more in the subtext. But it's only been now, I think, in the last few decades that it's actually really, really hit the mainstream in American fiction. But you look at European cinema from the 60s and 70s uh, and 80s, and you'll have all sorts of, you know, questionable characters doing question questionable things. Uh, for American, American cinema in the 70s, to be honest. Um, well, yeah, that, but that is true, though. Like, but that was because of the Hays Code and or everything that was going on in Hollywood. Isn't um, moral but, ambiguity but just the standard thing in mythology, though? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. And Achilles and Odysseus, these yeah. guys are all shits. Yeah. I mean, they're all horrible. They're, they're all incredibly yeah. conflicted and weird. I, 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 I think in a way it's the opposite. It's the, it's the flip side of what you said there, David, because I think what's going on is we are inhabiting a, a, a very peculiar period of history in the sense that because American culture has sort of the soft power of American culture has been very dominant, um, you know, in the in the late twentieth century and and beyond, um, there has been this weird sort of moral straitjacket applied to to things, um, you know, through 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 Hollywood through comics as well. I mean, the whole comics code thing, uh, you know, the the way they hamstrung comics as a medium for decades through that. Um, and and I think Joe's right. I think it, that actually is a, is the artificial thing. I think you because if you go back, I mean, I'm thinking when I was when I was a kid, I read a lot of the Leslie Charteris's Saint books. I don't know if you've ever read those, um, but they, I mean, they were these. He started writing those in like the the 30s, maybe even the 20s, actually. But I think the 30s certainly. Um, and 
they're astonishingly morally iffy for for a you know for what was considered to be light sort of boys' own entertainment. I mean, Simon Templer, he's 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 a functioning sociopath, you know, and and he's aware of the fact as well. Uh, you know, he's prepared to do all of these terrible things, and he warns the people he's he's dealing with that he will do them if they push him. Um, and that all just passed muster. Nobody really cared. I mean, you really go back and read some of the saint books from. Um, from from the 30s and you'll find some really exceptionally dodgy behavior from from you know who someone who is supposed to be the hero uh so yeah i think i think the post-war america there was this sort of hideous um maybe it was the war that there was a kind of scramble away from what the war had revealed had shown everybody and there was this sort of scramble to try and get back into the womb of this 1950s perfect little world picket white white picket fence mm. perception of things um and that's kind of lot lasted in a sense and i think i mean you know super fucking superheroes i hate them fucking superheroes they are the sort of the living bastard love child of that period because the, all this shit was conceived during that straitjacket period and so what we're living with now is the sort of the 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 desperate attempt to map that straitjacket onto a world which has moved on in every other context and he's going what are you talking about you know this is this you know and i i, I took my son to see um what's the, the last spider-man movie i can't remember what it's called now no way home that one no, no way home no way home yeah um and i was just sitting there thinking this is um anachronism you know these characters are talking the way that yeah fictional characters talked in the 1950s they have these long conversations about the morality of what they should or shouldn't do and uh, you know are you going to help me with this war i don't know if i can because you know my aunt told me this and i i think about that daily it's like a little house on the fucking prairie and um and i think that's the problem in a sense is that you know whereas if you were to sort of undo the straitjacket as it were um you know unlace everything what you'd find is as i say as joe already referenced go right back to the odyssey uh you know the iliad all these all these ancient stories the norse myths the sagas uh it, all this stuff it's full of the most colossal bad behavior by people who are ostensibly heroes uh well, that's no always expected of a hero you know yeah. you want your hero with a bit of dirt on yeah, you know, absolutely. They looked up to a sneaky backstab. Like Odysseus was a sort of object lesson in how to be a, a sneaky backstabber, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's contrasted with Achilles as a as a meathead, really, as a destructive meathead, a thug. Yeah. yeah. So I, 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 I think it's the opposite. I don't think it's when this change happened. I think it's when that straitjacket was put on. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, when it started to sort of find, we started to finally get loose of it. They're a bit yeah, of Victorian to sell of... toys and things, yeah. You, you know, yeah. When people wanted to sell toys and comic, you know, you know, and that too, and mm -hmm. a lot of because I said they were all fantasy as well. They're all that was all genre, you know. They yeah, Odyssey and the Greek tragedies, and you know, and they were and so, yeah, it is this idea of going like, oh, we need our our fantasy heroes to be all tied up in this way. It does feel like a recent thing that's dropped in that, yes, you know, mm -hmm. some people trying to kick off as. As much as possible. Yeah. There's a bit no, of Victorian I, I sanitation in there too. Do you think mm -hmm. a bit, bit Victorian, like Victorian versions of King Arthur and Robin Hood are very, mm -hmm. very mm -hmm. shy awesome. and, and heroic and kind of, uh, you know, perhaps there's some of that in there. Some of that leaked into fantasy too. I think. 
Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting, it's interesting yeah. isn't it? Because the, the Victoria again, the Victorians did have this very straight-laced approach on the surface. But then again, if you look at the Penny Dreadfuls and the uh, you know, the the really, really dodgy, like the vampire erotica and stuff that was was being written around that time. Uh I'll take your word for it, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was an enormous skinny <clears throat> underbelly to it all as well. And I'm not I I don't know enough about Victorian history to even have a sense of how evident that underbelly was or you know to what extent it was it was kept repressed I honestly don't know um but uh yeah I I think I think you know it's always been there and I think we've had spirited attempts to stifle it and and it just doesn't work it's like trying to drown a rubber duck you know just boom, yeah. <laughs> Jeremy Jeremy what were you gonna say I was only gonna say it's interesting that Job says Victorian because if you think about it like the first noir writer was Charles Dickens because in Oliver Twist, all the main characters are criminals mm. and it's about their featuring them in a time where class issues were at a much more uh, split apart than they were or can each bone of contention than they were in quite a long time. Well, you know, in compared to today, at least um, that he was featuring criminals and cutthroats and people who robbed others for a living uh so like so as going back to what i was saying it was always been there that no that darker more grayer side of human uh human emotion and human behavior has always been there i mean the greeks and the romans as far as i am told got up to some pretty naughty stuff so <laughs> it's, it's naughty yeah if uh, Monty <laughs> believed um yeah, it's always been around so it's just a matter of if it, how mainstream it is. I and mean, if people are consuming it the same way that people today would watch Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad or Daredevil on TV, but as of 20, 30 years ago, those sorts of things had completely different audiences. It's interesting. Somebody, I just saw somebody in the chat just reference Conan and said, you know, mm -hmm. Conan is about as morally gray as it gets. And that's a good point because, I mean, again, Conan was, Conan, those books, were, those stories were written in the, what, the 20s and 30s, I think. Uh, and again, it's not front and center all the time, but he's he's very much cast in the mold of a, a genuine sort of ancient warrior. Doesn't give a shit about setting fire to an entire city and you know sacking it. And uh, uh, so yeah, it's it's. I don't think it ever was you know it was always there. And you've got a line through Conan to kind of Fritz Lieber, Fafford and the Grey Mouser, and mm -hmm. you know then through that to Michael Moorcock, you know doing some quite questionable weird. Oh, in a big way, yeah. So there's always been this kind of parallel thread, even within fantasy, that's been kind of on the the gutter, kind of morally ambiguous, thieving, kind of slightly disreputable sword and sorcery figures have always been there alongside the more kind of uh, pure epic fantasy type characters, shall we say. Luke, you have any thoughts on this? Um. No, I, I guess no, I guess the, we're all no. saying the same thing, which is like the idea that, like, yeah, it, it's always been there. That's what story has been, both as a you know fantasy and as um, you know, and just story and characters in general. That it does seem, yeah, to be more of a blip than something that was there. That yeah, that be that we're breaking out of now. Um, feels like no, it's getting more in touch with what stories have always explored, which is <laughs> what the hell we're what the hell we're doing, how we're trying to wade our way through this you know complicated mess 
and that, um, you know, hey, it can be nice sometimes to see a cleaner, you know, have something, be able to digest something that's a little bit cleaner, a little bit simpler, but that generally what most of us are interested in, in something that explores what is often going in a lot of our heads, which is what we're doing, what we should be doing. Um, yeah, because it it's all pretty complicated. Yeah. What about you, Stephen? Yeah, it's, it's just as Luke is saying, we all have these decisions in our life every day. And there's a thing that you say, and there's a thing you think. And you don't always uh, cross the Well, you rarely cross the line if you want to live in a civil society. You know, mm. it's built on laws and rules, but equally it's built upon our willingness to always do the right thing within the scope of the law you don't have to there's consequences to pay but it's you know how far do you push it when do you become a criminal in our society and if you, you know if we're all writing fantasy or sci-fi it's does that make them a criminal you, you look at periods of fantasy book in like the 90s and you have things like there's a lot of uh, books about thieves and then you know so thinking oh that they're, they're the main character and you think yeah but then they're actually stealing from people it's not the robin hood thing they'd be going out mm. and murdering people except some poor tavern owner is just in there and someone comes in and stabs him and his wife and steals them I'm thinking what about poor block he's just trying to earn a living and like and they're yeah. the character of the book and you're supposed to get behind them and you know mm. so we go through periods i think there's arcs and we tell stories in the past that were very clean and as we've got more interested in morally gray characters, we get new versions. There's always retellings, but I think mm. we strip away some of the gloss and the gleam of his of what we think is history. And um, so I'm currently reading uh, By Force Alone by Lavi Tidar, which is <laughs> King, so the King Arthur book, yes. uh, which which is like, uh, it, it's ridiculous. It's like Guy Ritchie. <laughs> and uh, the creator of train spotting had a baby and then wrote about king arthur because it's miserable and grisly and brutal and dark and vicious and yet it still crosses it's like a slalom skier hits all of the points as it goes down the hill and who's to say fu. that wasn't how it was apart from the kung fu and the aliens well, yeah, we're not doing that bit, but you know. <laughs> pretty sure that pretty sure that that there's no there's, there's no, no gung fu in the real King Arthur, but you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there could have been. There one time I, I mean, it's an interesting thing, very interesting thing, though. This idea of of the way, and I see this is coming up in the chat as well. The way that what we think of as moral has shifted a hell of a lot as well. Mm. Uh, and I mean, one of the, I think one of the series that I was I had to shout out uh give a shout out to was vikings in, in you know when it first hit the screens because you know originally it was conceived as almost as a drama documentary and and the first season's full of like here is how vikings used to run a farm and you know this is this is what they believed about this and so forth but of course what came with that was you know they go to england and they find this monastery and there's fucking slaughter everybody and 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 there's no it's interesting because i, I although i did like game of thrones initially um one of the things i did find a bit annoying about it was they constantly reinforced the fact that it was morally gray so every 20 minutes a character will pop up and go whoa that's pretty morally gray actually isn't it and you were you were constantly being reminded that the they say hey these guys are not like your tolkien heroes you know just in case you were wondering um and i think what was great about vikings was it didn't there was nothing it was just like look these are vikings this is what they're like take them or leave them you know not our problem you know you deal yeah. with it um and i that was extremely refreshing because actually the characters in the first season they are most of them by their own lights they are extremely moral characters 
they start to get corrupted later on. But in the early stages, Ragnar and um, you know Lagata and uh, some of the other guys who go who go with him, they they've got a very strong sense of morality. Actually, you know, it's all about you know you you honor your oaths and you stand by your men in the shield, your your, your fellow soldiers in the shield wall, and you die with your sword in your hand and you go to Valhalla, and that's a moral code. Mm-hmm. It's not a moral code that we can sign on to uh but i think I know, I, that's how i live my life <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you live in beside me that's how i do it i mean i'm in norfolk i'm in norfolk we're a lot more civilized here it's instructive i think because in a way i think there's a bit of, there has always been a bit of sleight of hand going on in that um you know we want stories about guys stomping around the landscape with an axe or a sword, for example, you know. But then this issue of morality arises, and I think, I think in a way, we've been cheating because we've, you know, because we, it's hey, Tolkien's world's a case in point. It's like, well, yeah, that world, were it to actually exist, um, it would be horrible. You know, the, this idea of people would be swanning around dressed in white being moral. It's like, no, this is not part of the landscape, man. If you if your world is run by men with swords and axes, then, whoa, you, this is not going to be much fun for most people. And I think that's the thing. There's been a kind of attempt to cheat in that you we want the thrill, but we don't want to pay the price for it. Um, you know, and I, I, it's interesting because one of my reference points, a book that everyone should read if you like fantasy, is, again, Paul Anderson, The, the Broken Sword, mm. which was published in 1954, the same year as The Fellowship of the Ring, um, and is about similar things. It has elves, it has trolls, uh, it has um, a sort of doomed... Uh, there's a sword, a broken sword that gets reforged. There's a, sent, a, a doom that has to be followed through. But also it is extremely true to what ninth century Danelaw England was probably like. And it's extremely amoral and brutal, uh, you know. So, and I, th- I, what I like about it, it's not that I don't like the Tolkien, I think the Tolkien is dishonest. Whereas I, I, I feel that Anderson was being much more honest with his material, with, you know, what do you, you want this? Oh, okay, have this. And it's what Vikings delivered as well, you know. You want Vikings? Okay, this is what they're like. Ah, not so keen now, eh? Uh, you know, and I, I think that's very important, I think, because it's dangerous to the, what the superhero thing does is to lose sight of that. Say, I want a guy who's super powerful and can bash people up, but I only want him to bash up the good people and I don't want him to beat up his wife, for example, and I, and I don't want there to be any violence that isn't absolutely deserved by the people who receive it, you know. Um, what was... what they, Punisher. I, I started watching The Punisher, you know, the new one, the most recent yep. one? Mm. And I, first couple of episodes, I was like, wow, I really like this. This is extremely gritty and, you know, they're really not pulling their punches here. But there was something wrong and it was really bugging me. I couldn't work out what it was. It took me about three or four episodes before it, it finally, the penny dropped. And it's like, yeah, no one in this is suffering who doesn't absolutely deserve to. No one gets hurt who doesn't deserve to be hurt. Uh, you know, so that at no point does a Punisher do something where some innocents get hurt. You know, he doesn't kill someone and they, you know, they really shouldn't have been killed. It's always people who absolutely deserve what's coming to them. And again, it's the same thing. It's cheating. It's, uh, you know. Sorry, my, my daughter is beating on my door with a DVD <laughs> <Okay>. right now. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was, um, like, deserves it. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently I deserve something. Um, next question I got. Uh, why do you believe readers and even include yourselves as readers enjoy morally great characters so much? Is it the unpredictability or is it knowing that in general, most people are a slight shade of gray in their own right? Uh, and Stephen, I'll start with you. Yeah, it goes back to what I was saying before. Nobody is completely good. We've all got regrets, big and small, from things we've done in our life. You know, we haven't gone around chopping up people with axes, probably. But, well, if you have, you don't, if you, have you don't talk about it in polite company. So, whilst being recorded on camera. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's that thing of you, you go through life and you make decisions and you try to do the best, but you won't always do the right thing. And the morally, morally grey characters in science fiction and fantasy could take that up a lot further because there aren't the same kind of repercussions that we have in our uh, sort of polite modern society. They can go out with an axe and kill a village of people and, you know, they get chased by someone. But it's not the same as it is today with technology that's changed everything so much. They just don't have the same effect. Um, yeah, the, uh, the unpredictability, the fact that sometimes you can see yourself in the characters, even the worst characters, some of the decisions they make, you, you think, well, what would I actually do in that in that in that particular situation, if I was faced with those two decisions and neither one is particularly good, what would I do? Uh, and if the character makes, you know, one, you probably think, yeah, I, I'd, I'd probably do that. So there's always some relatability, I think, even to the worst character, because ultimately they're, they're human. Whereas if they're just pure evil or pure bad, then it's just, well, they're always going to do the right thing or the wrong thing. And it, there's no there's no arc, there's no development, there's no humanity to them at all. So... So yeah. what you're saying is there are authors out there that would love to take an axe to an entire village, but they just put it on paper. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've killed, I've killed like my tax man. I've killed my banker. I've killed, you know, te teachers from school who punished me for, you know, reading fantasy. They're all in there. But I said, yeah, because, because I mean, you write, you write people that you know in your novels, then you're like, man, what would it be like to kill this person at all? You know? <laughs> <laughs> No one's ever thought that, David. Yeah, no, never, ne you've never done it. Everybody around you is perfectly fine, and you just love them to death. Um, what about you, Luke? Yeah, I, I mean, very much so. It is, I, I work a lot of, as a writer, I work a lot of stuff out, and not working out like, um, you know, working out my aggression on people I want to kill, but trying to go, like, when you think about what action should be taken, um going like and knowing that i would also screw it up like even if i knew that this someone was purely evil or you know in a localized sense or something and you went in like, like it's so at what point can you decide would you able to would you be able to decide this person deserves you know as we say you know as richard was saying the punisher this person deserves it or this person doesn't or in the moment where you heard something and whether that doesn't mean you're even beating their head in but if you were, just say you were going to yell at them on Twitter or expose something about them if they're a job you're working in or whatever it is in our world that are where you take a stand, knowing that one, I'd probably stuff it up. But, but the question is always there. The question we're working out, do we want to contribute to, you know, there are things in, you know, I, and we've seen so much happen in the last couple of years, but like in America in a big way, but then Australia, we're wrestling with our own cultural identity. And within that, there is a sense of like, who do we uphold? Where do we put our voices? Where do we stand? And the fear of stepping on the wrong side of something, saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, going and actually putting yourself out there and 
knowing that you're now on a watch list that could affect your career or your, you know, or your life in some way. I think these are actual real questions that when you want to engage with issues do kind of come up. And just because there are, and then you've got these characters out here who are choosing, maybe they do do it with a baseball bat or with whatever their thing is. But I think the question's still the same. And for me, definitely, I put a lot of that into fetch in my books. And even though sometimes I, I go, I, I do my best to try and not cheat, which I know there are repercussions for the some of the stories sometimes or the dramatic, what, the payoffs you might expect. Because you go, there are so there are so many lovely, easy ways out of things that I don't think we have in real life. And that I, you know, you try and find a way to tell a dramatically interesting story while still not taking any of those cheats. And I do think that's when reading these characters are more interesting because you do feel yourself go up like, would I do that? Maybe I would. Oh, now he's in there. That's probably maybe, oh, I thought that was a good decision. I now, a couple of chapters later, realized that was absolutely the wrong decision, but I was with you when you did it, man. And now, <laughs> uh, I do think that's why, to me, I'm drawn to it and why I hope, you, you know, I might feel like the readers would hopefully be drawn to it as well, is that in some part of our brains, we're trying to navigate this stuff. Look, I've, you know, I've stood next to Rupert Murdoch once and it broke my brain. Because you, cause Cause in that you could have like, pushed him onto the railway tracks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really? That was, I was putting the, you know, this is terrible. I'm definitely going to watch this now. But you run <laughs> a bit of those equations. But, and we're just also thinking like people around people like that all the time. These people that we do go like, you are making people's lives worse. Mm-hmm. And you are surrounded by people all, that, all the time who uphold certain things, who for their own benefits, you know, work with you, support you, could let you like facilitate your evil like that's out there people are making these calls all the time and and sometimes we do it with our money sometimes we do it with who we work for or where we put our voices and so um y- you know and it's definitely more dramatic and interesting to have a character going around with a set of brass knuckles y- you, know, you know it's it's a much clearer way to do it but yes the and, the what's going on in here is still pretty similar so going, going around and acting justice on your behalf <laughs> yeah that's right well yeah it's, see it's that's usually where you go like you have some thoughts about i'm gonna i'm gonna get online and i'm gonna do this or i'm gonna you know and then sometimes it's good to put that through a bit of fiction and you know let things play out there rather than you know get too excited about you know kicking things around in real life yeah yeah, yeah. what about you joe what makes gray interesting I mean, I think the guys have talked quite about, you know, quite a lot of the things. Um, the shock value of it, that the characters can be surprising is certainly one thing. I mean, I think there's a certain degree to which it feels honest. I mean, we've talked about violence quite a lot. And, you know, fantasy is pretty violent. And the, the main characters are often warriors and kind of kings with a sword and priests with a sword and guys with swords. They're sword-based guys. <laughs> sword-based fiction. You know, I think, generally speaking, people who are very good at murdering people with edge weapons are probably not going to be effective and contributing members of society when the swords are sheathed. You know, they're going to be people who are, in one way or another, psychologically damaged or difficult or troubled in, in some way. And so I think that portrayal of violent men as being a mess damaged badly by what they've done and what they do 
um, and generally morally ambiguous. You know, violence is fundamentally quite morally ambiguous because there has to be someone that on both ends of the sword, <laughs> if you like. So, you know, it's, it can't really be consequences free in the, in the real world. So I think violence has to be morally gray if it's going to be feel honest. So there's a kind of honesty about moral greyness up to a point. And I think humor is another really important thing. You know, morally great characters are free to be funny in a way that whiter than white heroes kind of can become a little bit pompous. You know, that, that total purity becomes slightly pompous when it's pushed to the extreme. That, that you know, those tones of greyness are what, allow you to have some humor and some wit and some irreverence. And so I think grayness goes alongside. It's not, you know, I don't want to be prescriptive at all because I don't think you ever can be with writing. You never know what works. But for me, grayness goes alongside surprise, wit and honesty in a way that is positive for fiction. Is, yeah. is Both Ends of the Sword already a Joe Abercrombie book? Because it sounds like <laughs> 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 Go ahead and jot that one down. Yeah. <laughs> New title right there. Yes. Yeah. Jeremy, any thoughts? Yeah, I I follow the same train of thought that Luke does. I think that uh, I try to explore those dichotomies and wrestle with that those quandaries through the line of fiction. And uh, it, it's why that I write a morally gray protagonist. And there was a case in uh, when I was editing, writing book two, where I threw him into a situation where, to you know what he had to do, he basically went and killed someone quite brutally in front of a whole crowd of people that he didn't need to, but he absolutely felt was justified. And I did that. It wasn't part of the arc. It wasn't part of the storyline. And it actually messed up a few things down the line. But in order to me to not do that would have felt dishonest. It would have felt as if I was betraying not only myself, not only the character, but myself. Like, what would I do in that situation if I was filled with this, you know, drug that made me get high on aggression and I had these things done to me? Would I walk away and let do let the the cops take sweep him away? No, like, two, one of us ain't walking out here alive, out of here alive. And afterwards, when there were repercussions for that. And I was, you know, toying with the scene and, you know, he's trying to say sorry to his teammates for, for acting on this way and uh, sorry to the people that he promised that he wouldn't do this. And I couldn't bring myself to, to do that because I thought, no, he's not sorry. He's not apologetic. This is the thing that he believed needed to be done. He doesn't think it's the right thing. He knows he's a bit of a rat bag. He knows he's a bit of a, a bastard. But that is in order for me to stay true to both the character and myself, I had to write him this way and I had to make him feel this way, uh, have that emotional response. Otherwise, it would have been contrived and forcing, you know, trying to like shove shoehorning it in. And I couldn't do that. And it's the same that, you know, and I think that that's why people do are drawn to these sort of characters and worlds that is not only a degree of surprise, you know, what are these people going to do when they face these circumstances? But, um, but, you know, the honesty of it, you know, they won't always do the right thing. They will sometimes kill someone in cold blood. They will sometimes, you know, this person was supposed to be taken in alive. No, you've hurt me and the people I care about. I'm, you're not walking out of here and I'm not going to pretend I didn't enjoy, just enjoy it just a little bit to see you dead, um, you know, at least in the moment. And I think that being able to wrestle with that, you know, how someone feels right then and there and how then they feel later down the line, to we actually regret their decisions is something that's pretty important. And one of the biggest, most brutal scenes I've seen that done well is in The Last of Us. 
And when I say that, you're all going to know what I'm talking about. It's the ending. And, you yeah. know, spoilers, we haven't played a 10-year-old game. But when Joel has to, you know, go ahead and rescue his, uh, rescue Ellie, and basically in slaughters a huge amount of people in them in the meantime, and basically dooms the entire world to an apocalypse that could have been avoided. The zombie, uh, basically, apocalypse that could have been avoided. Well, and maybe. Yet, met possibly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, possibly. That's true. And so when you go to the operating theater and you see these the surgeons there that are unarmed, hands up, and I just had a few conversations with people, uh, or a few parents, and they've I've asked them, you know, what would you do in that situation? And would you actually kill these unarmed uh, surgeons who are about to operate in this uh, this daughter-like figure. And these people who, some of them who I are usually very up, morally upright and very straight and narrow, all said, yeah, I would have done that. Absolutely. Right. My daughter, bang, bang, bang. I don't know, like, I don't know any parent that would take a step back and say, no, I'm going to, for the good of humanity, for the good of, uh, for all people in the world, I'm going to let them cut this girl's brain open. You know, I don't know anyone who would have done that. Uh, would have said those things and so i find that incredibly interesting mm. and that was i think the thing that a lot of people took away from that game was the ending and the con and as you can see in the, the sequel the consequences of making those decisions so yeah it's it's a degree of honesty of uh sheer raw honesty i think mm. richard any thoughts close us out on that one yeah i think we've covered most of the ground here um i do think that uh I, what what I think is what what I what I value in fiction, whatever package it comes in, is is humanity. That is to say, when you've captured something that is absolutely human, and you will see this. I'm sure everybody has these experiences. You're watching a movie or a TV show or something, and something happens, and it needn't be anything particularly important it can just be something that goes on between a couple of the characters very often it'll be a piece of side storytelling you know it's, it's not 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 majorly relevant but something an exchange a, a look something and you go that that human you know you realize that they've absolutely nailed the, these moments are very often funny um i'm not sure why that maybe it's because humanity is essentially funny i don't know um but th there are those little glints and you know, you know when you're in the presence of good writing, basically, because you because you're like, yeah, that that's real, you know, that's a real moment, that's a real thing, that's that's humanity in action. And these things mostly occur when there's a lot of layers, where there's a lot of different stuff going on. Uh, so, you know, when characters with different agendas have those agendas maybe clash in some way, or somebody has a a very different approach to something that is being done than the other person would have approached it or whatever, you know. And obviously one of the ways in which you can have those layers is, is that that simple question of, of moral choice. Um, and to say The Last of Us is a good case in point because it's an irresolvable, you cannot resolve morally the end of that game because there are two, there are two things here. There is, the, there is the what do I do personally in my, to, to protect this person that I have essentially taken on as my daughter. And then you've got the, the broader view of what do I do that is the, the morally right thing to do for the greater good, et cetera, et cetera. And you can't resolve them. There is no resolution. And one of the intrinsic issues of being human is that. It's that lock between what, what matters to me and what I know objectively matters in a, in a broader context. And I, so I think what appeals about the morally gray issue is that it will constantly bring you into contact 
with those human moments. It will constantly give you this repeating thing of, oh my God, yeah, that's, that's humanity in action. That's real. Uh, in a way that, and again, I don't want to bag on superhero stuff again, but I'm going to. Um, it, you know, I find that those movies, there, as, as Scorsese said, you know, they're very well made, um, and huge amount of talent goes into them. And my, you know, my ten-year-old son kind of enjoys them, um, but they leave me utterly cold because there's nothing of humanity in them at all. They they declaim about humanity. There's these big sort of narrative moments about, you know, human choices and what what is it to be human and what's good and what's bad and all this kind of thing. But, you know, there's for all the declaiming, there, there are no more, there's almost no actual human moments going on in those movies at all because it's all been abstracted. It's, it's been turned into a bunch of, of, of sort of statements and, and uh, stances and things. And I think that's why I don't enjoy them because they lack that. And I think why the reason they lack that is exactly that, that there, is, there isn't that moral quandary. Um, I mean, I remember when, when Black Panther came out, I haven't seen it, but um, I remember that Ken and Malik reviewed it for The Guardian. And he said, you know, it's great. He said, it's fantastic to see this huge cast of, of uh, people of color. Um, and it really bigs up this idea of Afrofuturism and it, the, the fact that white characters are essentially sidelined in the narrative. He said, this is all great. And he, he, he sort of talked through what was great about the movie in that respect. And then he sort of draws a, you know, could see him drawing a breath and the paragraph and he goes, but in the end, it's a Marvel superhero movie. And what does that mean? Well, it means, um, you know, uh, a moral tone about as dark as um, Midsummer's Eve in Northern Finland, and, <laughs> and 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 it's that, yeah, exactly, it's that 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 lack of of the human. Uh, I'm not interested in stories that won't show me that, you know. Uh, if you, and, and I think, unfortunately, if you want to show it, tell any kind of human story, you have to import the, the morally grey dynamic. If you don't, you're not telling a human story. Mm. Yeah, I, I like uh, being able to kind of have like a palate cleanser for superhero movies by like watching the boys. <laughs> you get to see like the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah, <laughs> where you just you, you you look up to these people and you think they're amazing and they're saving you know everything, and then you like kind of get into uh, you know what they're actually about. Uh, yeah, but I there's a guy we can all admire, though, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> great guy. I mean, yeah. he's wonderful at parties. You know? <laughs> yeah, you read, you read any goth and his comic, and it's like that. You go back and read Hitman, you know, from the '90s, and it's the same thing. Everyone's so grey and so black, and it's just, yeah, he doesn't like superheroes, and he's rarely yeah. written them in the way that we think they should be written. <laughs> or, no, I mean, he's, 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 caught, he's that, hasn't he? He's on record as saying, "I hate, I, I hate superheroes." You know, he's, he's, yeah, yeah. And, and the boys, the boys is. Uh, I wasn't that keen on the sh the show to be honest, but the the comics are are fantastic and. And yeah, it's written all over it. I mean, it's it's you know from the you get that brilliant scene in the park where the the super, where Homelander zips over overhead in Superman mode, and he's sitting in the park looking up at him. And you go, "I'm going to have you." You can't. <laughs> like, okay. Terms of engagement set. Off we go. You know. Thank you, Garth. Uh, <laughs> um, last question I've got uh, just to go through. Um, do any of you set out to write morally great characters? Uh, has it, you know, I, I know some of you have been writing for years. You know, it may not have been intentional in the beginning, or it may have been, but uh, you know, did did you set out to do that, or did it just kind of happen as you were, you know, coming through ideas? Um, Luke, I'll start with you. 
Um, look, I, once again, I, I think we write what interests me. So I think I've always been drawn to, you know, putting my own, you know, confused, questionable thoughts into stuff. Um, but but maybe there was some part. I think the, kind of like what we're talking about of being honest and, and human is that while um, the, that kind of noir hero, uh, and maybe it was that I, like I read all the Chandler novels, but also, you, you know, I'd seen then all the Hollywood versions of it, you know, and a lot of, with, you know, with Bogart playing a lot of them. And you do get this kind of, well, I love those films. There is a little certain sense of coolness and polish onto it. And I think, and I do remember having somewhat of a feeling as a teenager when everything does feel so complicated and you feel, you know, every time you open your mouth, you feel you embarrass yourself and go to bed every night, you know, it just like, you know, sweating with shame and, and you know, feel out of place. And then you see Bogey, just out there, once again, being quite funny and cool. And and that idea that, like, and often that noir hero or these, how these kind of characters are portrayed where it's like something terrible happened to them and because of that, they don't give a shit about anything anymore. And so they can just walk around in the world being like, yep, yeah, fuck you, fuck you. <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, wouldn't that be great? You know, like, I can't wait till someone, I can't wait till someone breaks my heart so bad. Like, <laughs> I don't care what anyone thinks. And I think that was a genuine, like, desire. Like, I thought, like, that's cool. That's what growing up's going to be. I'm going to be broken, and that's going to make me not care about the things. I think it be really cool. And then, of course, you start growing up, you're like, oh, that's not what happens. Like, when things screw you up, it does not make you cool. It generally makes you uh, a shitty person and, <laughs> you know, and makes you more likely to hurt other people and to do terrible things. And so... I think maybe in mind there was an intention there to go like, okay, let's take a guy who thinks, who said he had an idea of masculinity and of being a grown-up that was similar to what I saw in those bogey films, but now let's get in his head and see what a mess he actually is. And, you know, most of the books are him trying to undo those mistakes he made by trying to be that kind of guy. Um, so, yeah, so there, there was a somewhat intentional thing there to to pull apart an idea of a that kind of hero we'd seen before. Mm. What about you, Jeremy? Yeah, yeah. I don't really think I did it intentionally either. I think it just naturally evolved into that state and to, I just took a lot of what was going on in my head at the time and uh, the things I was wrestling with, you know, putting myself in these situations. What would I do? How would I respond to these things? And especially like the topic of uh, masculinity and what it means to you know, be this hero who goes out and does these things and acts in this way and, uh, you know, but also has these very tender emotions and very strong feelings about, you know, relationships and brotherhood and loyalty and honour and how you balance that dichotomy. Like, are you able to actually go out and say, you know, I don't give a stuff about, about this or that or I'm not going to trouble myself with this situation because I've, I'm burnt but also have a 180 and, and have the opposite and, and really show that you can have a lot of emotional tenderness and a lot of care. And I think that was kind of where I was coming from um, But I when I was writing these books, but I don't think it was anything deliberate. I'm actually not sure that most writers do that this deliberately. I think it's more of a subconscious thing. I mean, yeah, like obviously everyone's individual process, process is individual, but I think that a lot of it is subconscious and, 
you know, when you're writing there on the page, you write tend to write from the heart. And I think that the stuff that's more successful is the stuff that's written from the heart and that it just, you can just tell that there's a lot of raw honesty. And I think that's where I was coming from uh, a lot of the time. And so that's why I tend to write from character and not from plot, uh, because I would much rather say, okay, where is this going to take me? What are the consequences? What are, what's the end result here that I've made this decision and I, something that I've read this moral quandary that I'm wrestling with for quite some time, or I've been thinking about, you know, how would I see that reflected in this uh, very alternative world? And uh, yeah, it's, I think it's, again, I think it's something that's subconscious and something that I've always been interested in, something I've always been drawn to. I mean, there was a reason why the fiction that I was reading always was, you know, stuff that was always on the darker, grittier side. Even when I was a kid and I was reading Young Adult, I was always drawn to, you know, stuff like even like Stephen King's stuff because it had this raw authenticity, this grit and this dirt under your fingernails that you can really see. Yes, that's that's a real person. That's something someone would say. That's something someone would do. And it's it, it just it was professionally honest, I think. And I think that's a, 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 what a lot of us are saying anyway. And, mm. uh, yeah. What about you, Richard? Yeah, I, I don't know if it was intentional. I mean, I, I, you tend to be, especially your first book, I think, tends to be the sort of sum of all the input you've had up to that point. So, I mean, I grew up watching, you know, the spaghetti westerns. Um, a lot of, I say, 70s American cinema was full of really gritty, ambig- ambiguous, morally ambiguous storytelling, you know, Three Days of the Condor, um, Scorpio, stuff like that. So I grew up watching all of that stuff, um, probably younger than I should have been, actually, in a lot of cases. Um, and yeah, I, then I and then I graduated to, like, these gritty French cop dramas like um, L426 and, this, uh, you know, Tavernier movies and things like that. Um, and then Mad Max, as the Australians came calling. And so, I, I, you know, in a way, I don't honestly think that I had a chance of writing anything different. I I, I like to say when people ask me about Star Wars um, and you're like, yeah, it's all right. But I... <laughs> between um you know i can see why it's popular you know with kids um i i um between i went to see empire strikes back and was a you know loved it loved it to bits fantastic movie i still get a slight vibe from from remembering how i came out of that movie the first time waited for jedi which was another two or three years i can't remember how long it took them to make it but anyway and i went to see jedi I was bitterly disappointed because it's a shit film but also um between those two movies i i saw mad max escape from new york and alien and i mean game over man you know it's, it's those those three movies just punch such a massive hole in my perception of of what good genre fiction was and what you know storytelling about um you know heroic stuff was um that that you know to be honest return could have been the best of the trilogy and it still wouldn't have made any difference it would have been too late by then um so by the time i sat down to actually start you know writing my stuff and certainly by the time i wrote auto carbon was kind of i was on that track i couldn't have got off that track if i tried uh you know um couldn't couldn't ever so you have know, asked me you know do you ever want to write a, like a luke skywalker type character and you're like no, why, why would I do that? Uh, it's, you know, uh, my doom was set long before I actually picked up the pen, I think. <laughs> what about you, Stephen? <laughs> um, 
yeah just mostly said most of it already but um i like to ask questions difficult questions and then explore what some of the answers would be um and one of the characters in my new book is that you know we haven't really talked about religion history is littered with things that people have done what they believe is right because they're god or their priest or you know according to their scripture it's the right thing to do it's the good thing to do whereas history looks back and says you know that was that was horrific and they were killed thousands but it's a good cause at the time or so it would seem um so i like to explore faith i like to explore things that i wrestle with as i go through life or saw points that have you know happened to me in the past i go back and explore them or i've seen around me in the news or wherever it might be and just try and explore it with honesty as we've said find a topic find a character find a moment and see where it takes me and just try and so i don't i don't set out to do it but in in trying to tell a true story you're going to end up with some moral ambiguity otherwise it is just a pure story of good versus evil and that's less interesting for me these days in terms of my own work mm -hmm. just to butt in for a second i think that if all of us were to go back and look at our earlier writing and we would start to perhaps realize not at the time but realize okay that's what i was feeling at the time that's why i wrote about this thing this thing that was bothering me or this thing that was gnawing at me that i just couldn't let go and you know even if it's a subconscious thing i think a lot of us would perhaps not even realize at the time that that I, this is the reason why i wrote this thing the way i did I mean, I go back at my other stuff and I'm like, oh man, this is an angry book. This book is filled with so much rage. Man, like, this book is like, man, this, this character is so full of hate. Oh, that's right. I had this situation going on. Okay, that explains it. I was going through a really difficult time when I was at, uh, at high school. That explains quite a lot. That's why it's so blistering, ice cold, cleaving, bashing hatred. That explains quite a lot. Yeah. that's where the masculinity thing comes in like i'm just responding to some of the people in chat that that you know that i mean like they tend to be quote unquote more like men just like seen in a lot of fiction just very angry and like undirected anger and just feel oh i've got to you know fix something be the hero and just say all very angry and broken inside like what luke was saying and i think that at least for me i'd like challenging that and i think that some of the best fiction that you see even in joe and richard's work and uh, Luke's as well. And you too, Stephen. And you too, Stephen. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. Right to the end. He's the masculine characters and you and having the that the perception of what it, of masculinity and violence and warrior type uh, archetypes being challenged and exploring that in a very subversive way. Hmm. Joe, uh, I, I know it always sucks going last, but do you have anything to add? <laughs> oh, and yes, actually, m many hours of material to add to that. <laughs> Probably nothing, nothing useful. Uh, I mean, as with the others, I, I don't think I did really set out to be morally grey. You know, you kind of, it's easy to mythologize long after the fact. Hmm. You know, it's 15 years, I think, since my first book was written. I know I don't look old enough, but it is actually true. And... I don't know, you read, you read people saying things like, oh, this is plainly a subversion of expectations, and you start thinking, oh, yeah, that is what I was doing. I was being subversive. Yeah, of course I am. Yeah, I, was I think I just wanted to write my take on Lord of the Rings, really. My version. <laughs> and uh, that meant incorporating a lot of other stuff that I'd enjoyed, like, you know, James Elroy. I, I <laughs> loved the kind of character-focused, explosive sense of voice you get out of those books, you know, mm -hmm. and 
I'd read noir and I'd read westerns and I'd think, why aren't people doing this in in epic fantasy? Why is epic fantasy kind of repetitive and a bit obvious and a bit predictable and a bit pompous sometimes? Why doesn't it have this kind of this intensity and the, this wit and this sense of voice? And so I think it it just came out of wanting, you know, in a very diffuse and nebulous way, wanting to see the kind of book I wanted to read, which was epic fantasy with kind of that wit and that honesty and that sense of voice. And it became grey almost as a byproduct, like slag in the steel <laughs> process. I suppose. Uh, Next but, job I call the title, Slag in the Steel. <laughs> yeah, Unforgiven was a film that I massively enjoyed. And I guess it was like trying to do try to do to fantasy what Unforgiven tries to do to Western, you know, to kind of tell a very classic story, but in a in a grittier, kind of more honest, more sideways way, I guess. And then that's what came out. Who knows why things happen. Things were just a little too, you know, white and and too pretty and too perfect. You're like, throw some dirt on it and then some mud and some blood and more stabbing. And <laughs> Although, you know, I couldn't honestly say that that was a plan before I started. Yeah. You know, I think I just started wanting to write, oh, I'm going to write an epic fantasy series like those ones I used to read as a kid. Mm-hmm. And that's just what happened. <laughs> Which is kind of... I'm, people I'm just kind of died, you know, it's, stuff happens. I'm, I'm undermining <laughs> the myth of my, my brilliant subversive approach. <laughs> oh, goodness. All right, well... um. Now it's kind of coming to the time where I just want everybody to, to kind of go around and talk about what you've got going on now. Uh, if you've got a recent release you want to plug, uh, and if you want to recommend something that you've read recently, uh, that'd be great as well. Uh, but Richard, we'll start with you. Oh, shit. Right. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, you got me on the recent stuff because I'm just trying to think. Uh, what am I doing now? Well, as I said, yeah, I'm writing a sequel to my last book, To Thin Air. Uh, this is called Gone Machine, and it's got the same protagonist it's in it's all on mars again and uh, has some of the secondary characters show up again as well and things have not changed all that all that much for anybody really it's mars is still a mess and uh, you've still got this guy desperately trying to leave because he doesn't like it and 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 he's he's trapped there so that's that's ongoing i've got a little side project that is more leaning towards a, a slight more fantastical thing but that is i can't really talk about that because it is really really eggshell fragile at the moment i've literally just started writing a few a few little bits and pieces on it so i'm very interested to see where that goes uh working on the the video game for gunzilla um that's that's in the future that that won't be coming out for a while so uh, there's no point in plugging that um and uh right so and you were asking me to recommend things that i'd read well um 36 streets is a mm. science fiction novel by um tim yeah, who's uh, uh, of T.R. Napper, he goes by on the front cover. Uh, and it is that he's basically the, the most recent heir to the cyberpunk, you know, heirlooms, as it were. And it's it reads a bit like Gibson, but it's set in Vietnam. It's a Vietnam that's been invaded and occupied by the Chinese. And uh, and there's a nice little, he, he plays tricks with, there's a, there's a nice sort of um, mirror trick here in the sense that it's almost like, the Vietnam that we all know from the American Vietnam um, war movies, except this time the invader has come from the north, and uh, it, it's um, but a lot of the same shit is 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 there, you know, um, and it just it's it's just a brilliant piece of slice of of cyberpunk noir. It's a beautiful thing. So I say um, it's called Thirty Six Streets. 
and uh, by Tim Napper. Can really, really recommend that. Um, what else? I've been reading quite a lot by the guy. I can't even remember his bloody name now. Ben something. Ben Ben Wart? No, Ben Myers. He wrote a book called The Gallows Pole, uh, which got a lot of attention a little while ago. Um, yeah. I think it is Ben Myers. Anyway, and I've been going back through his back catalogue. There's a, a really good one called Pig Iron, uh, which is a sort of gritty and grim. It's very odd, actually, because it's a gritty, grim sort of uh, British, almost like a British noir. Um, it's almost like almost like a Jim Thompson novel, but set in, in you know, in sort of Midland Britain. Uh, but it's also got this really weird pastoral vibe going on because the central character goes off into the surrounding countryside to sort of find peace and be at peace with himself. Um, and that's actually better, in my opinion, it's better than The Gallows Pole. I think The Gallows Pole's good. I can see why everyone raved about it. Um, but I think, in my opinion, Pig Iron is a, is a superior work. I think it's a lot stronger. And it's got a lot more surprises in it. it, it there are a lot of things that happen in that book. That you're like, wow, did not see that coming. Um, so I could definitely recommend that. Um, read a lot of non-fiction at the moment. Um, I'm reading a book called Wildlands, which is about it's called it's called the making of America's hate, and it's basically an ex, it's sort of an examination of what's led to the the current sort of crisis of of confidence in America at the moment, and what is America and what does it stand for. Uh, so that's been very interesting. Um, and I'm rereading some Camilla Paglia. Uh, going back through her her writings over the last 20 years because she's a sort of very stroppy feminist who won't be categorised and put in boxes and her, her feminism overflows into some interesting places that most feminists won't want to follow it. Uh, and I don't agree with her about everything, but I think she's she's unafraid to call things out and I think that's very important in the current climate. I think it's important to uh, to read people who aren't aren't afraid. We talked about upsetting people before and I think it's very important to read people who, who don't mind upsetting people say fuck you you're offended your problem not mine uh, and paglia's paglia is absolutely the, the go-to for that she really is okay what about you jeremy um yeah my latest release is um book two blind space it just came out november i think yes yeah, like two or three months ago and um yeah the hasn't released in the u.s yet but the first one is stormblood's releasing in March, I believe, in US and Canada, and I'm writing the third at the moment. And I've never actually written a third book in a series before. And I've, well, it's my second time ever writing a sequel or first time finishing a series. So uh, it's an interesting experiment. But um, yeah, it's going, it's a lot more character driven, I think, than the first book was. Like the first book was a lot more noirish, voice driven, not and uh, not really planned. But the sec as they've gone on, they've become a lot more focus on relationships and interperson interperson diacon uh, balances and how people interact with each other and how people clash a lot a lot ways and a lot messier th uh, have a lot more messier results and uh, i think that i was i'm a lot more i think prone to do that like some like i was earlier like i'd be like oh no this is the narrative this is the plot but now i'm like you know what this is going to be a bone of contention like how can i not talk about this this is the way the story wants to go and these really messy, very human, very authentic, at least to me, conversations uh, need to be had and these things need to be discussed and these, and it can go to some really unexpected places. But uh, there is also a big uh, cult uh, obsessed with alien drugs and also giant cathedral spaceships and also, you know, lots of wars going on and lots of uh, big spaceship battles. So if you're not interested in the characters, there's always that. 
what have I been reading? Um, yeah, it doesn't have a release date. I think August, no, 2023. And uh, I've got no idea what the title is whatsoever, despite my editor telling me that I need to have one very soon. Uh, what I've been reading lately, doubling down on uh, Richard's recommendation, 36 Streets by Tim Napper is an excellent, excellent read. Uh, it's incredibly gritty. Like I've not read anything like it since Neuromancer. Uh, you know, it's it's very. I really do love the. I think the you mean Insulted Carbon, don't you? Oh, well, of course. That <laughs> I read Alter Carbon before Neuromancer, Richard. So... Oh, good recovery. Good recovery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So remember, like I'm like half your age, Richard. Remember that. Uh, Golly. <laughs> Burn. Two for two. You're not making any friends here. Yeah. Middle Thursday. Thursday. Yeah, 36 streets. It's, you know, I love the setting that, you know, it's not just, you know, the Midwest of America, but it's quite an authentic Vietnam. And I'm somewhat familiar with that region of the world, not as much as I'd like to be, but, and it just re reads incredibly authentic to me. I mean, and really, like, he captures the voice, the essence, the feeling of being there, and he deals some pretty heavy themes and i think they go really quite well um I've, a friend of mine uh, nick martell his books uh also published by galance started with the kingdom of liars uh they're incredibly really 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 good they examine a lot of uh you know a lot of uh, myths and storytelling and there's a m magic system that's based off memory so it kind of plays like memento you'll be reading a chapter and you'll be like the character will be like hang on, didn't I do that before? Oh, no, I must have forgotten it because I've used magic. And so he quite plays with the narrative quite well in a way that I wouldn't dare to because I don't have time, patience for that men those mental gymnastics. But he did it quite well, and I would highly recommend them. Uh, this other book I read just recently is actually not a sci-fi book at all. It's called Blood and Sugar by Laura Robinson. Uh, and it's about the slave trade in England in the 18th century. and uh, yeah, and there is stuff in there that is so harrowing that I, or like, in the middle of my wood job, I was listening to the audiobook in my job, like, I, I almost kneeled down and started weeping sort of stuff that is portrayed there. Like, just to give you an example, there's one scene where the main character goes to a, a blacksmith shop and they have chains on the wall, different sizes for different slaves, and there's one chain that says chains for uh, people of for the age 5 to 11. And I'm like, oh, dear God, no. Oh, like it's just, it's stomach churning, but like, if you can stomach it, it is a really good read and it shows how we overcame or how, like it was over that awful, awful part of history was slowly eroded. Uh, not solely enough, of course, but yeah, if you can stomach it, it's, it is quite good. Otherwise, um, yeah, I'm reading, uh, what am I, yeah, China Made, but I just finished Pedro Street Station. And I've never read a, a book that long that I just would happy, happily keep reading another 800 pages. So yeah, quite, I try to diversify my reads. So, yeah, How'd you look? I, I'm out. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, uh, yeah, the third book in the Fetch Phillips archives, One Foot in the Fade, comes out in March. Um, and that is kind of the book where after two books of Fetch Phillips, in this broken world that he feels guilty about being responsible for as being, you know, kicking around Sunder city, mostly being, you know, drunk and full of self-loathing, uh, kindly just in line with what we've been talking about, um, starts to think that maybe picking up a sword and jumping into action might be the way to fix things. And so it, it kind of takes a little bit of a tonal turn. We get to see a different side of him. 
Um, but yeah, so that comes out soon. I've been writing something else, a more collaborative thing that we I can't announce yet, but uh, I'm really excited to be able to start talking about soon. Um, and yeah, then as far as stuff I've been reading, uh, just finished the Fonda Lee's Greenbone Saga, Jade Legacy, which was just fantastic. And um, I did that one all on audiobook, which I, I do a lot of audiobooks, and that's just a beautiful, I mean, beautifully written, beautifully performed cast of characters. Um, uh, yeah, uh, which is, yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, it's one of those ones where, you, and you know, where you're coming into the last installment of a series where you feel like you know these people and you feel, and that's just through such careful character decisions and choices and giving windows into all their worlds. So uh, that was a bittersweet ending to that. And from a non-sci-fi uh, fantasy thing, uh, The Overstory, Richard Powers, which is essentially a big book about trees. It's like a <laughs> vignette splintered story of all these different characters who kind of each have a tree in their story. And it's beautifully written, but also you learn a shitload about trees as you read it. You just get these little... It's so packed with information about how uh, forests work, trees work, how they talk to each other, all these little discoveries that just while you're kind of devouring all these different stories of these people, you kind of, it's its just one of those great books where when you look up from the pages, you see the world differently. Mm. Yeah. How you, Joe? Uh, the last thing I published was Wisdom of Crowds, which was kind of the third book in this trilogy I was writing for 6,000 years. Uh, and that came out <laughs> in September, I think, and was wonderful. I mean, it's a magnificent book, magnificent series. As I like my mum agrees with me on that yeah. score. <laughs> love my mum loves it. Um, my dad's more of a mixed feeling. Uh, <laughs> and I'm halfway through, I'm actually just exactly halfway through my next book now, which is kind of that's the working title, The Devils. Usually, the working title just ends up being the title because you know you, you get used to it and then it seems yeah. to fit better over time. Um, but I'm halfway through, so I'm sort of feel like I'm kind of just about turning the corner now to the point where I don't utterly despise it. I think it might actually be all right. Okay. And then hopefully by the time I've written the third part, I'll feel like, oh, actually, you know, I might still have a career after this. Which that's, that's, a, that's a bad. <laughs> so, we're, we're, I, you know, I hate everything till it's finished and then I start to think, oh, maybe it's okay. And then I need someone else to tell me that it's actually all right. So we'll see. But, um, Reading, I don't. I read very little fantasy generally. I tend to pretty much everything I read is nonfiction on the whole. But I did, funnily enough, read a fantasy novel recently, which was Daniel Abraham's new one, which is not Age of Ash. Age of Ash, yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's out in a couple of months. Mm. And I thought that was really interesting. It's kind of very unusual, as with other stuff that he's written. You know, is is not kind of gaudy, gung ho, heroic, violent stuff. It's quite. Gentle's the wrong word, but it's quite kind of character-based and and thoughtful and sort of delicate, subtle, really. And apparently his plan with this, it, it's three books and they're the same set of events from three different points of view. And so it kind of, and you can feel that as you're reading it, that it sort of is going to unfold more and more. It's like a puzzle box. And uh, I thought it was really, really good, actually. I enjoyed it. Very, not like anything else I've read in that space. Um, that was exciting. Outside of fantasy, one thing I just finished yesterday, so it's on my mind, is Yellow Jackets. Anyone see yeah. that? Yeah, I finished that last week too. So That's, good. Yeah, I mean, it's like nothing else really. Yeah. It's sort of 
lost meets what i don't even know what lost meets <laughs> but it's yeah crazy weird but very clever and great performances and yeah. you know constantly surprising um god knows what they'll do with it going forward really unpleasant as well at times in quite a refreshingly mm. you know sharp and brutal way uh so i enjoyed that a lot i'd recommend that to anyone who wants to watch something yeah, sure. I, I was, when you when you said I don't really read and you didn't finish up with fantasy books, I was like, "Are you sure?" Just <laughs> looking at your massive bookshelves behind you, just I always know oh, when I see that they're just cardboard. It's just cardboard cutouts. <laughs> just a green <laughs> screen. You buy them by the yard, can't you? Yeah. It's a roll that I pull down. Yeah. It's flat. If I poke oh. it, it around. I thought they were your books, though, with different different spines on them. I yeah, they're, they're all, all like Polish and Czech and. Yeah, what about what about you, Stephen? Um, yeah, uh, my current series is a duology with um, Angry Robot Books. The first one, The Coward, came out uh, last June, and uh, the sequel, uh, The Warrior, comes out this August. Um, editing it at the moment, um, but at the same time, I'm writing book two of a new thing, something quite different again. Probably the most challenging thing I've i've done for some reason i thought it'd be a really good idea and the more i've got into it the more i realized how difficult it is now and um wading through it yeah first book's done i'm on, on to the second book of this new thing but uh yeah it's it's yeah pushing myself it's in terms of stuff i've read um yeah by force alone is what i'm reading at the moment by lavi tedar that's definitely worth reading um i've been reading a lot of harlan ellison again i spoke to jeremy about this i'm being haunted by the great Harlan Ellison. Um, but the best fantasy book I probably read last year was um, The Black Tongue Thief by Christopher Buhlman. Oh, it was so spectacular. It was just unlike any other fantasy book I'd read that year. It was so original and clever and witty with poems and songs and quite dirty and grimy and full of mythology and uh, fart jokes and cock jokes. And uh, yeah, it's really good fun. Really, really enjoyed that. And uh, quite a good romp through a world that like I haven't seen in so many, so many years. And he just made everything completely his own, but his own spin on so many different things that I just absolutely loved it. So yeah, I can't wait to, for him to do the next one, which is currently writing. Yeah. that so, And you, and you, what you say that it, like the voice in it is so original and different yeah. and you just, uh, like I, I just remember, I, I can always remember reading that book. Cause I read it, I don't know, probably, several months before it came out and i just kept telling everybody i was like you, you gotta read this book and i think dirk ashton was the one who turned me on to it because he had read it even more months prior to that so uh but yeah i definitely recommend that one as well but uh this this is you know we've come to the end of the panel i just want to thank my panelists so much for for being here taking the time out to uh answer all of my questions whether or not they had a solid answer to it uh in, in in mind or they needed to pick off somebody else but just really appreciate y'all being here thanks to everybody that uh that watched and that commented um and just uh thank you everybody that's tuned in for tbr con period uh it's been you know eight days 24 panels four dnd sessions it's probably going to be bigger next year i don't know why i keep doing bigger things but <laughs> but you know it's a lot of fun i enjoy doing it uh i enjoy seeing you know all my favorite authors in one place uh so just uh just thank y'all and hopefully we can do something like this again next year cool thank yeah, you thanks for organizing thanks, it David. absolutely thanks for doing this i'm really enjoying yeah. it